Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. A basic question posed in the New Testament, and particularly by Paul, in regard to the law, is there a uniform law which gives us access to God and the universe? That is, can we all discover this law? Or is the law due to sin, in fact, contradictory? And not a singular thing, but a multiplicity of things. If we read Paul and the New Testament as primarily concerned with reconciling us to the law, I think this is an indicator of the philosophical stance that will result. And it is no accident that it is Anselm of Canterbury who posits the definitive nature of the law. That is, he says, it's the law for which Christ died. It's the law through which God relates to us. And it's the law that is, in fact, in his philosophical arguments, a a kind of way in which we approach God. And at the same time, he is the father of scholasticism, the idea of incorporating Greek thought into Christian thought. And it's the end of a process in which language per se, in the law, in his description of the subject, in which he says, you know, the way we come to God is through our own interior language, even in his description of reality, is language-based. And the philosophical theological task in this I think mistaken understanding is like the job of every good lawyer to describe or prescribe the law of the father. Anselm actually pictures it as a zero-sum game in which there is a precise logic at work. Maybe this is like the Aristotelian philosopher king kind of understanding in which there is an unquestioning wisdom attached to our order of knowing, not perhaps so much in the details as in the very authoritative status as an order of wisdom. And in this understanding, determining reality and how it is to be negotiated, it becomes the joint task of philosophy and theology. And of course, where I'm going in Colossians is Paul's questioning of this philosophical understanding in which we would imagine that philosophy and theology, Christianity and Greek thought are engaged in the same discourse. The law of the Father, you know, gives us metaphysics. It gives us Newtonian science. It consists of a singular conscious surface. And I believe this is really what prevails from Plato to Descartes. Anselm's law of the cross is precisely a philosophical legal requirement and his approach to God is through a linguistic formula 
You know, the ontological argument. God is that in which no greater can be thought. Everything is ontological, grounded in our understanding of being. So that theology is an extension of philosophy. And this as a word that we use today. It's called ontotheology. As language puts all things in our grasp. The law is the logos with little l, is the logos with a big L, and it's all just one big flowing thing. On the other hand, if we, and I, uh, this other hand I think is the biblical hand, where we're going in Colossians, if we recognize that Paul is actually suggesting that the law is not normative, that's not the way we relate to God. It's not even regulative. In fact, it's enmeshed in contradiction due to sin. Paul describes it that there's two laws. The law of the mind and the law of the body. Our philosophical stance will be returned from metaphysics, concerned as it primarily is, you know, oh, well, there's this harmonious reality that we can arrive at through some sort of law, there will be a shift to the person of God. That is, I think, that we have to do with a discontinuity, a questioning of the law. And that's really what Paul is doing. Paul describes these two contradictory laws. According to Paul, you know, my mind and my body, I do what I don't want to do and what I want to do, I don't do. And there is a sense that sin has deceived me, he says, and we do not have access to the law. That is, we don't even know what controls us. Sin has deceived us with regard to the law, and we can't understand it. That's what he said. Now our concern is not so much with keeping the law, describing the law, but there is a questioning of the law. And so Paul, on several occasions, I believe his discussion of philosophy and his discussion of the law are going to follow a similar course. His basic presumption is to contrast God's wisdom and human wisdom. Human philosophy is over and against what God is doing in Christ. He speaks of the Jewish law in the same way. Actually, there are places in which he seems to equate Judaism or Jewish law with philosophy. There's nothing inherently wrong. He says the law is just and holy and good. But to rely on it as primary. He describes to imagine that there is life in the law is a turn to slavery. And turning to human wisdom or human religion, it amounts to slavery. So look at Colossians 2.8. And the presumption is behind this passage and several of Paul's engagements with philosophy is that it will take you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. And so the Colossian heresy is based on, he says, human traditions. It's two things. And the elemental powers of the world. And these are contrasted to Christ. It pertains to human traditions. 
but actually he's saying it's dependent on the elemental powers of the world. That is that the elemental powers will take control of you through reliance on this human tradition. And both of these impersonal powers are contrasted with the person of Christ. This is typical, I think, of Paul's note on philosophy. We can find it in Corinthians and Colossians in several places. Human wisdom is a presumed law-based wisdom, a logic. It reduces reality to a form of thought. Maybe we could say it fetishizes human wisdom, human language. And it has a punishing effect. That is, he's describing you're doing this, you're abstaining, you're practicing these human traditions, and you're suffering as a result. Many people think there's a Jewish aspect to this false teaching in Colossae. Jesus will use very similar language about human traditions in Mark 7, 8. He condemns the Pharisees as those who have rejected the commands of God and hold to human traditions. Those seem to be contrasting pairs. Devotion to the elemental spirits, you know, this is in Galatians chapter 1, is how Paul primarily described the Galatians, their acceptance of Torah. Paul could refer to this as it's a kind of syncretism, a Jewish speculation. He actually refers to it as a philosophy. And it's in keeping with how the Hellenistic Jews of the period refer to their faith. We have Flavius Josephus designates the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. He calls these philosophies. And the Jewish writer of 4th Maccabees refers to Judaism. He says, our philosophy, our philosophy teaching temperance, self-control, courage. The Jewish philosopher Philo had no difficulty in representing Judaism. He calls it a philosophy. So Paul may well be in Colossians 2.8 referring to this mixture of Judaism and philosophy. Paul uses the terminology maybe of the false teachers for their own teaching. And he describes this, there's a hollow deceit, he says, a type of Paul's description of sin. He will refer to sin as a hollow deceit. The lie of sin is that life can be had in the law, in human traditions, in language per se. And what happens in this process is that there is a punishing effect. Paul calls submission to the elemental principles of the world. Paul often describes this as slavery. It's a relinquishing of freedom that we have in Christ. And the reason for taking up philosophy with Paul, that is, how does he regard it? It's not the way that philosophy describes itself as a quest for ultimate reality, the articulation of what the, is the case. But in Romans 7, it's, it's, even though he's not specifically naming either you know, the philosophy or even the law, we're not sure what law he has in mind here, I think we get the same basic attitude. Paul describes himself, the human subject, as consisting of three different parts which are interdependent and antagonistic at the same time. And these parts 
are describing a sick individual, someone pitted against themselves and pitted against God. They're fractured parts resulting from sin and the law, or in fact the orientation to the law. And it resolves around three things, three facets the law functioning as prime reality. Paul refers to these as the ego, the I. He refers to the law, the law of the mind, and he refers to the body of death. And of course the English word ego is just a transliteration of the Greek word Paul deploys to refer to himself. He situates this I, he says, it's an effect of its relation to law and death. And in Galatians, he'll say, I have been crucified. That is, the dissolution of this I is the cure. This sounds a lot like Sigmund Freud, who also discovers three parts to the self. Almost the same parts that Paul talks about. One of them is literally the ego. But Freud is slow in coming to this. And actually, I think modern thought is slow in coming, I think, to what we're encountering in Paul. Freud imagined that the human problem was mainly dealing with eros, with sex and pleasure. But he realized that was inadequate to explain the sickness, that people are sick, and he posits another thing that is causing the sickness. He refers to it as thanatos, what Paul calls the body of death, I think is the same thing. And with this positing of a death instinct then, we get three parts in Freud that look very much like the three parts in Paul. That is, the modern psychoanalytic analysis is that of the New Testament. And this would amount to a kind of new picture of the subject, a new energy, a new drive. No longer did Freud see mankind controlled by one goal, but he split between two things. He talks about death in almost New Testament terms. It's not that death is a force independent of humans, but it overwhelms people. That man stands opposed to himself and he brings about his own destruction. We're self-opposed. And we take this death up into ourselves all the time imagining that this is the way to secure or save the self. I'm referring to Freud, but this sounds like Paul. This is the history of psychoanalysis, and the point of this is to say that there's no cure here, but there is a description of the sickness. And we can find Paul then doing two sorts of things with philosophy, which pertain to these same three registers. And he will use philosophy. I counted, there's some like 15, 16, and probably many more than that, in which Paul is actually quoting the philosophers. And he'll even quote in key aspects of the gospel, particular philosophical thought. But this common ground, and I think that's what he's doing, he's finding common ground, it will come to describing, you know, what a person is or when they approach God, when it comes to that, he makes a departure. So let's take an example. Look at Acts chapter 17. This is one of the longest discourses Paul uses. It's a sermon. And we find Paul in Athens conversing in the synagogue. It says in 16, with the Jews and the devout persons. 
And then some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers joined the crowd. And then he is summoned to present his message before this audience, before the Areopagus Council, the city council. And among his audience is the council, a crowd of bystanders in 1720-21, and maybe there's just some ordinary Greeks who are believers, perhaps in the traditional folk religion, the gods, the keepers of the local cults. But these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers are the only group mentioned by name. And Paul, is, as he's going through this, he's referring to primarily Stoic philosophy because probably the majority of Greeks at this point adhere to Stoic philosophy. So for example, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. He compliments them, a common way to begin a speech. But of course, the thing that he's talking about is that there is rampant idolatry. And they put on display a sort of punishing scrupulousness in that even the unknown God has an idol. They want to cover all the gods. They don't want to miss any. I think there's a certain fear there. He says, as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found this inscription, to an unknown God, in verse 23. Now actually, this is Paul's characteristic way of describing Gentiles as those who do not know God. This is in Thessalonians, Galatians, Corinthians. He engages what little knowledge of God he finds on the Areopagus, which is the Greek, you know, this is the height of Greek philosophical learning, by proclaiming to them the God which by their own acknowledgement is unknown. And God is unknown because people, Paul says in Galatians, were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. They have come to know God, this is the good part, not because of their philosophical quest, but because God knew them, not because they've applied themselves to their wisdom, their philosophical or natural studies, but because they have been delivered from slavery to the law of sin and death. And Paul depicts human wisdom as no help in knowing God. And perhaps the obstacle, the world, he says in Corinthians, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. And on the basis of this wisdom, the cross is counted as foolishness. And so the same wisdom judges the true revelation and deliverance to be foolishness. The shift is from belief in what is not God, Paul says, but an inanimate object, to belief in Thessalonians, in the living God. The passage is from, he describes it in Thessalonians, out of a satanic deception to the truth. And so Paul depicts the work of Christ, particularly the resurrection, as deliverance from the law of sin and death, which deceives, which is not God's law. It's the deceived human orientation to the law, which he equates with tradition and philosophy. But we go through this speech, and what we'll see is a series of quotations. Each one of them are an affirmation of the Greek philosophical thought. That is, he's finding common ground. 
we could go through, they're approximated in the various pagan writers. God made all things and is Lord over all, verse 24. God does not dwell in temples made with hands. God needs nothing from anyone, but is given to all creatures life and breath and all things. The Stoics would be saying, Amen, brother. God made all nations and pointed times and boundaries for them. God made them to seek him and he is not far from anyone. They're still with him. They would still be agreeing. And in God we live and move and have our being. He's actually quoting a Greek philosopher. And all are one race from him. Verse 28. Since people are a race from God, he cannot be represented by material things. And while God has overlooked even this passage, we can find in the Greek philosophers. He's overlooked their ignorance, now all need to repent. And only at this point, though, does Paul say something that an average Greek would find unusual. This God has appointed a day of judgment to be executed by this unnamed man whom he has designated and whom he has raised from the dead as proof. So Stoics, they were profoundly influential on the thinking of the time. And this is his primary point of departure is on the point of the resurrection. Now, the Epicureans were also there. Much of this material uh, would not have appealed to them. For instance, the Epicureans could with Paul and the Stoics, maybe they would affirm that God does not dwell in things made with human hands and that he needs nothing from humans, but no Epicurean would agree that God created all things. For in their view, the atoms, you know, the randomness of the universe, it just popped into being. Nor would they say that God has given people gifts and set boundaries and places. For the gods, you know, if they do exist, the gods are remote. They're removed from us. They're uninvolved in human affairs. So they don't believe that God is near. On the Epicurean view, therefore, whoever seeks him, whoever seeks God, seeks him in vain because he is not to be found. And Paul is, I think, speaking to the Epicureans, but now we have him. We have found him. But there's also deep differences from Stoicism. Paul declares, for instance, that from one God, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and that we are God's offspring. For Paul, the unity of the human race is from the common descent through Adam, who received from the Creator, were created in the image of God. And that is the quality of reflecting the Creator who passed this image. But for the Stoics, the unity of the human race and their connection to God is that the Stoics would say, we all have a common origin, but it's not in common descent, but we're all descended from the stars and the divine heavenly bodies then still inhabit us. And each person's soul constitutes a fragment of the divine element. So for the Stoics all are indeed, they could agree, sprung from the same stock. God is both the father of all and is by nature in all. But when Paul says that he is not far from each one of us 
and the, in him we live and move and have our being. He doesn't mean what the Stoics might mean. That they would say, oh, we have a fragment of God. But Paul means that God is not far, not because we have a piece of God, but because he cares for us. He's made himself known to us. We live in him, not because we contain God, but because God supplies breath and life to all people. And so the stoic-minded person might have agreed that God, Paul says, permitted humanity the times of, of ignorance. But here Paul's meaning is completely different. This is according to Seneca, who was a stoic contemporary of Paul. Human beings were born with the seeds of reason, but without possession of reason itself. And the point is not to reason your way to the truth, like Seneca in Paul's thought, but rather God has revealed himself in Christ. That is, the Greeks thought you're given the seed of wisdom, you use that wisdom, and you attain to deity. The other thing is that in Paul, time has a beginning and an end. And he's describing, you know, somewhere in the middle of this, God has sent Christ, and now he's demanded all people everywhere to repent. Of course, the Greek view is that time is cyclical. In its stoic reflection, the universe has no beginning, it has no end, but it continues eternally and uniformly. And when the cycles complete themselves, well, they just repeat. And so popular Greek thinking, there is no final judgment. Certainly not, as Paul says, that God has appointed a day of judgment in the middle of creation for all of creation at once. A divinely appointed agent of judgment who was resurrected from the dead. So the Greeks, they may have had a vague notion of judgment, but they did not believe any of these things, and especially the resurrection. Aeschylus says, a man, once he dies, and the earth drinks up his blood, there is no resurrection. Among the Romans, there is the belief in total annihilation. In fact, you find a common epitaph, the, the saying, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. And you can just use the first letter of this, uh, N, F, F, N, S, N, C, and everybody knew what you meant. It was that phrase. Even the Stoics, who in Paul's day acknowledged the immortality of the soul, they seem to believe that you just return to the stars and you lose any individuality. And so there's inevitably darkness and nihilism, a punishing belief in itself from which Paul is delivering them. Faith in Christ accomplishes what faith in philosophy cannot. And so in Colossians, Paul is addressing this local assembly. They've been infiltrated by a form of false teaching. It threatened to undermine the gospel. That is, the gospel is in competition with this philosophy. And there are some clues that it's a kind of Jewish mystical practice mixed with popular pagan folk religion. He mentions in verse 16, special days, including the Sabbath. He mentions in verse 18, visionary experience, the worship of angels. He mentions abstinence. 
And this submission and abstinence he terms as enslavement to the elemental principles. My point here is that Christians, historically, we've been a little bit unsure what to do with philosophy. I'm just now beginning teaching a course in philosophy. And my question, you know, as I begin this, well, what does the Bible have to say? Some have followed the church father, Tertullian, who says, what indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? Most Christians, however, have followed Thomas Aquinas. And he sees philosophy as a handmaiden to theology. Paul is certainly willing to engage philosophy, but he wants to bring out a personal psychological element. There is a sense in which philosophy, I think, has caught up with Paul. From Plato, maybe to René Descartes, there is a kind of singular focus. With the passage through Luther and the philosophical shift from Kant to Hegel, philosophy really is psychology. And it comes to the second element in Paul, the I, the ego. Prior to Kant, it was just a matter of, oh, you look in the mirror of nature and being or God or whatever it is discloses itself through the perception of the world. We pass from identity, I think, with the law to a questioning of the law. I think that's where we're at. If we had to line up the stages of history according to Paul's three parts of the subject, we've passed from a period of law to a period of questioning. The law-oriented, superego, metaphysical attempt to say it all, that's ruled out of court. The subject himself or herself eludes us. I think, therefore I am. Oh, but Kant says the thinking thing and the thought are removed from one another. Nature turns out to be a mirror that excludes us from its reflection. It is not in law, nature, or human wisdom that we encounter God. This is the conclusion that Paul brings us to. We only encounter God in one place. Look at verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.